Hello and good morning. Do you, uh, do you find that passage interesting? As it was read for us? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you were listening? That's good. I'm glad that everybody was. It, it's interesting because often when someone gets up to read, our, our minds, uh, we have to actually focus them. Uh, our minds, I think, naturally tend to, to wander a little bit. So we have to actually stop and, and consciously think about what's being said, what's being read for us. And so when someone up, opens up God's Word and begins to read, there is an importance there of concentrating on what is said. So Jesus begins to tell his disciples and show them that, he, that he's going to die, that he's going to suffer and die, that he's, gonna, that he's going to be physically abused and then die. And now, Peter is uh, obviously one of the first to always speak amongst the disciples. And, and yet he comes up and says, no, that's not going to happen to you. And he even invokes uh, the name of God. That, that's not going to happen to you. There's a temptation there, is it not, for Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? That Peter is, is, is tempting Jesus. To say that that's the way it could be. You could go about it in a different way. They're expecting a, a kingdom. We've talked about this before. But they're expecting a, a kingdom physically. That Jesus would rise up. Lead them out from oppression under the Romans. That he would lead them into glory. That he would establish this physical kingdom. Like David. And there is inherent in what Peter is saying. This offer of that. And that's why Jesus responds so dramatically and says, No, get behind me, Satan. That can't be the way it is. That can't be the way we go. So think about that. Jesus is beginning to tell them that he is going to lose his life. I've always wondered what it must have been like to travel with Jesus as the disciples. You know, we get to see a lot of the conversations. We get to see a lot of the uh, talking points when we open up the New Testament. We get to see a lot of uh, what went on, but we don't get to see all of it. And I find it interesting to think about how much they must have talked about, how much they must have shared, all the private conversations that they must have had uh, during Jesus' ministry. Everywhere they went, there was crowds that followed him. And he would take time to, to be a part, but crowds followed him everywhere. And he gave guidance, he gave instructions, he performed miracles. He healed those that were, were sick or had ailments, often in very public form, so that people could see the power of God at work. They could know of what he said was true. But then imagine what must have been shared behind the scenes. The teaching. How much they must have learned and still had to learn trying to decipher all that was, was happening around Jesus, trying to figure out who he was in all that he said. There were many that followed him around with the sole purpose of trying to discredit him. And often this was the, the Pharisees or the Sadducees 
uh, the Essenes, the teachers of the law, all of the religious leaders, they, they followed him around with that exact purpose of trying to discredit him. And yet Jesus continued on in life, teaching and sharing. Turn into uh, Matthew chapter 15. It says in the very beginning of Matthew chapter 15, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus replied, Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your traditions? For God said, Honor your father and your mother. Anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father and mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied against you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them, they are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart came evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Is it a good idea to wash your hands before you eat? Probably a good idea. In fact, we probably send our kids to go wash their hands after coming in from outside and playing with who knows what uh, to go wash their hands. It's a good idea. So why then does Jesus say what uh, it's not going to defile them? Is he talking a physical sense that it's a good idea to wash your hands? No. Wash your hands. The Pharisees came uh, with this question and this, what really can only be described as, as something of a, of, a, of a trap for Jesus. He said, they said in verse 2, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders and they don't wash their hands before they eat? This is a, a tradition that was given by the scribal laws, that this was uh, obviously custom and it must be done or should be done. But it's not uh, a question of law. And Jesus replied to them with a question. Now, I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever asked someone a question and then they replied with a question. That probably has happened to you. Do, do you appreciate that? Depends on the question, I guess. But more often when you're looking for an answer, you want an answer... And you get a question, you're thinking, well, now I have to give the answer. If I knew the answer, I wouldn't, would have done it in the first place. I came to you for the answer. But Jesus answers a question with a question. He says, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? 
For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone curses your father and mother. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not honored, or they are not honor their father and mother with him. So they come with this uh, trap of, of why do you break through tradition? And Jesus, uh, he's not going to fall into that. And I think one of the things we have to learn from that, the idea that we have to learn here, is that often the world is going to put forth questions before us. Well, what about this? How come your God does this? How come, how come this happens? How come God allows this to happen? How come the Bible says this? And the slant that they take on it, or, or the perversion that they put into it, allows them to ask the question in the thought process that God must be wrong in some way? That the Bible must be wrong in some way? That God is lying to you in some way? Because I think this. And if you start with that initial stance then you're going to be in trouble. And it's a trap to try to fight every little fire and say, well, no, 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 wait about this. I'm not saying that we shouldn't go and preach and teach the truth. That's exactly what we should be doing. But we have a world around us at large that will attempt to bring you away from the truth to try to explain why the world is the way it is. Without conceding that God is right or that the Bible is real. And if we cannot begin on those points, what are we going to do? I had a, uh, while living in Dauphin, had an interesting conversation one time with, uh, with Danny Weave. And he was talking, uh, while we were in class, we were studying Romans. And if you've ever had the privilege of trying to teach a Romans class when Danny Weave is in, in the class, um, that's one of his uh, favorite books. And so... You just start a conversation, and, and as he finishes it, it's wonderful. And you learn more uh, listening to him than you do trying to teach it. But uh, he begins talking about, uh, in, in Romans, about sin and the idea of sin and coming back from sin. And he shared the story uh, of a neighbor that he had one time, and they were, they were teaching each other and sharing with each other and, and having conversations about God with one another. And they came, he said he came to a point in, the, in uh, one of the conversations where he realized that he was never going to convince this person that the Bible was the Word of God. And that it was a starting point for teaching about God. That if we want to know about God, that we could open up God's Word and we could study. And so he asked the question, what do you do then? What do you do with someone that will not concede that either God is real or that the Bible is real? And I found it interesting because he said he had to kind of step away for a while. From that conversation. Until the person was willing to concede that the Bible was real. The world is, is set. Satan is set on trapping us. The Pharisees did it all the time with Jesus. They bring an adulterous woman before him. And say, what should we do? What should we do with this, this person? Set as a trap, right? Trying to get him in some way to go against God, to go against the will of God, and, and it's going to be the same for us. They're talking from their traditions. Right? It's exactly, exactly what they say. Why do you disciples break the tradition of the elders? And Jesus is like, well... 
Why do you break the command of God? Why do you think your traditions are, are more important than God's will, than the command of God? Do we have traditions? As a, as a group, as a body of believers, as a congregation, do we, do we have traditions, things that we do every Sunday or throughout the week? Yeah, we do. We have traditions. Do those supersede the will of God, the command of God? They do not. They cannot. Because what happens is, if those traditions, if those things that we think of as important only from ourselves become more important than what God teaches, what God shares, then what we're saying is that my feelings, my thought process, my wisdom is greater than God's, and what direction could we go from there? Well, you can go in any direction you want from that point and end up in any number of places. It's why we have uh, so many churches in the world, so many denominations in the world. It's why we have cults that base their religion on the word of God and are so lost from God. Because when it comes down to the traditions of man, if we have this idea that they're more important, then we become lost. And there is a real clash here between the Pharisees' line of thinking and what Jesus is saying to them. They're talking about the traditions, and he's talking about commands from God that they're willing to set aside because of their traditions or the, the, the traditional law that they've come up with that then supersedes God's command. So going to uh, verse 3, when Jesus begins, says, And why do you, why do you break the command of God? So here he's talking about honoring your father and mother, or, or curses their father and mother is to be put to death. Now, the problem here is that they had decided that if they take the money that they have and devote it to God. So this money is devoted to God. I don't have to give it to God. I don't have to, I don't have to give it to the church. I don't have to walk it into the temple. I can just set it aside and say it's devoted to God. The trick there being that if it's devoted to God, that I don't have to then help my parents with it, which is what they were supposed to do is to help their parents, to honor their father and mother. But they've come up with this uh, escape from having to be under the obligation of honoring their father and mother. But God has commanded them to do that. But now they have this escape saying, well, and they're using God to do it. If I devote my money to God, I can just keep it to myself because it's devoted to God. That's terrible, isn't it? I mean, just think about that, about the thought process there, that I can use God to not have to honor my father or my mother, to disobey God on so many levels for traditions, for the sake of tradition. Is this a real problem that we face in the church right now, in our lives right now? Is it? Or is this something that we, uh, we turn into Matthew and go, well, that was interesting that that happened, and I'm glad that that's there. I'm glad that God put that there. But really, that has uh, zero effect on our lives. Uh, have you ever watched uh, The Masters? Everyone know what The Masters is? Golf tournament, Augusta, Georgia. 
maybe the most uh, watched or most famous golf tournament in the world. And their, their slogan for their tournament is a tradition like no other. And it's a fantabulous, if I could use a made-up word, a fantabulous golf tournament on a fantabulous course. And anyone who, uh, not anyone, but most golfers, if they could, would golf at Augusta. But you can't. Don't even worry about it. Not only is their membership so very exclusive that uh, Tiger Woods once, when asked whether or not he golfed it, says, I can't, I'm not a member, and never will be. So... There's the tradition like no other. How many people do you think stay home on the Sunday of the Masters to watch golf instead of go to church? How, how many people do you think uh, watch football instead of go to church? How many people have a million other reasons not to go to church on Sunday morning that don't feel like excuses, they're just real good reasons on not to go to church on Sunday morning? It happens, right? Think, it happens, right? There's things that come up, there's work, there's all these other things that we have in life. The question I have is not so much about that. The question I have is about our heart. is do we have a heart for worship? Do we have a heart for God? Do we miss being there on times when we really have to miss? Do we make extra excuses to miss? Or do we make reasons why we should be there? And then if we have to miss, we have to miss. That uh, is just the way life is sometimes. But is our heart dedicated to God, to honoring and worshiping God? Do we know... Do we know, very real, that when we are here, it is an encouragement to those around us, and when we are not, it is a discouraging event? Have you ever thought about that from your own perspective? That when you are here, you encourage others. Because you're a part of the body. You're a part of the body of believers. And it's, a, it's important, is it not, to have a heart for worship, to have a heart for God. And so we're glad you're here. We're glad that all of you are here to worship, to open up God's word, and to study it, and to know it. And we cannot allow this idea of traditions, this idea of more important things, to seep into the culture of the church as it has into the world, to seep into the culture of the church, to think that there are things that are greater than the worship of God, our relationship with God. It wasn't that long ago, talking about football, it wasn't that long ago that all the start times were in the afternoon. Why? Do you know why? So it didn't conflict with church. And that, I mean, that's very real, that all the start times were in either mid to late afternoon or evening. In the last little while, that has changed. Now there's start times in the morning, there's start times, there's been a shift in that change. Now they're a multi-billion dollar industry and they're wanting to make money so they stagger all their times. Have we changed 
as a church, have we changed in our heart? Not that we're all going to not going to be here next week because we're going to be watching football. Good luck with that. There's no NFL right now. So it's not like that's going to happen. But the heart of it, the heart of who we are, do we desire to worship God? Do we desire to meet together? Do we desire to have that connection with one another? To know that it's important because we are a part of the body together. Do we have an individual personal relationship with God? That we have to, that we have to cultivate our, our faith, we have to cultivate a closeness with God through study and prayer. Yes, we have that individual relationship with God, but there is a unity that comes with being a part of the church. There is a bond that comes with being a part of the body. So this is a very real thing, to get away from the commands of God and fill those in with the traditions of man. And we have to understand the importance of that. So what does God say? You know, what does Jesus say here? One of the things uh, that he warns the, uh, those about and says, You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. They worship in vain. There can be an outward show of worship, of singing songs, of reading passages. And what does it mean if there is no connection to the commands of God, to the word of God, to the will of God? If there is no connection to that, then what does that worship mean? Does it prosper man at all to worship God falsely? No. No, it does not. Hope is that we're growing and understanding and maturing, that we're growing into more and more the truth of what God's Word says, but to worship in vain because they had gotten away from the command of God. Do we know what God says? Do we, as a church, as individual members of that, that body, do we know what God says? Do we see the truth when we see it? Do we know it when it's before us? We do not want to worship in vain. How many of you ever uh, heard of the group, and this is going to date myself a little bit, but how many of you ever heard the group uh, Millie Vanilli? Anybody? Cultural reference? Okay, we got a few. Millie Vanilli was uh, pretty popular when I was a kid. And they had about two really, uh, really popular songs. And, I mean, very popular. And in fact, if you turn on the new, there's a new 90s channel in uh, Winnipeg. You turn on the, the 90s channel, they'll still play a little Millie Vanilli. The problem with Millie Vanilli is that Millie Vanilli is hard to say many times in a row, but the problem with Oh, I can't do it now. With them is that they could not sing. Millie Vanilli could not sing a lick. I mean, they could not sing at all. So how do they get a popular song? It's called lip syncing. They, in fact, had someone else who 
someone else entirely. Not like they sang the song through autotune or they, you know, perfected it behind the scenes and then came out and lip-synced their own voices. No, they couldn't sing at all. So they got someone else to sing the songs and then they came out and pretended to sing to the sound of someone else singing. To two very popular songs that were on the radio lots. But it wasn't them. It wasn't them at all. In fact, these two guys were singing to the voice uh, of a woman. And no one knew. Until they knew, and then Millie Vanilli was done. Lip syncing. Is it possible to fake worship? Is it possible to fake Christianity? Not to God, it's not. We, we sometimes uh, fool ourselves into thinking that we can. Does God know you? That's such a, it's such a ridiculous question to ask because the answer is so apparent. Does God know you? Does God know who you are? Well, if he knows the exact number of hairs on your head, if he knows the words before they come off of your tongue, God knows you. He knows who you are. Where can you go to hide from God? Turn into Psalms. Where can you go to hide from God? If you go to the east, to the west, if you hide in the darkness, there is no place you can go to hide from God. God knows if you're lip-syncing or not. God wants you to have your heart engaged. He says they... These people, in verse 8 of Matthew chapter 15, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And I, sometimes I think we have to, we do, we have to go through these, these times when we're going through hardship, and we have to force ourselves to come up and meet. We have to force ourselves to pray. We have to force ourselves to read God's word, to be engaged. And I think we really have to. We have to do those things. We have to have a heart that desires to be connected to God. And sometimes when we're really going through trials, it seems like God is so far away, but that's the temptation to disconnect. What we have to do is reconnect and come back to the commands of God, come back to the Word of God, come back to what He says, and to follow it, to have a heart that is close to Him instead of a heart that is far away. To worship God in truth. To really strive to be His. We take the time to have communion every week. The bread and, and the juice. And often it's, it's interesting because when I'm I'm on for the, the Lord's Supper to, to weave the thoughts around the Lord's Supper. One of the things that I, I always try to think is, well, what can I say that will engage people's minds? You know, engage their minds into engaging their hearts. And, well, what's something, what's something new that I can share or think? And, and the answer is, well, there's not really much. There's not really much new you could say. You might tell a story no one's heard, or, or you might use an example that no one's heard. But the, the reality is the truth of it is the same. And so sometimes I, as I think that, I say, well, do, do we fall into the trap then of that just becoming this, 
this ritual that we do it every week, so we better keep doing it every week. You know, God says we should do this, so we'll just do it, and we'll get it done, and then we can go and have our lunch. And I hope we don't ever, ever fall into that. But continually understand that even, even though we do it every week, that it is a call, a call on our heart to be close to God and to remember Him, to remember what He did for us, to remember what it took that we could have life, that we could live eternally, that He died for us. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, your heart. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you think about when you think about stuff like that. But where is your heart? Where is your heart? If you're, if you're listening, think about that question right now. Answer that question right now. I, I've sat on the other side for a number of sermons and heard people say, well, think about this. And my brain oftentimes immediately wanders. I think it's one of those things where um, I rebel against someone telling me to do something. Uh, but actually stop and think about this. Where is your heart in connection to your relationship with God? Are you close to God? You know that, go back into verse 8, and it, we've read it a couple times already. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. God wants us to be connected to who he is. To have a heart for him. That it's not just about this ritual or about the traditions. It's about having a heart that is close to God. This morning it's titled Being Faithful. Faith will look different, will it not, at different times? James tells us that faith is, is born out in action. It causes us to respond. It causes us to desire to be pleasing to God. We can't be pleasing to God with, without it. I want to turn into... Again, into Matthew chapter 15, but just where we ended off. It says, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and is suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs and fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Do we, do we see the, the contrast in the two stories of faith. We talk about the Pharisees and their idea of traditions 
their idea of moving away from God's word or what God says and, and trying to implement their own things. And here's a woman who is, who is not Jewish, who is not uh, under God per se, but comes and has this incredible faith that what Jesus says will happen, that Jesus can do this, that from afar he can heal her daughter. And Jesus' response was, you have great faith. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed at that moment. Who, who has the, the, the closer heart of faith? Who, who understands what Jesus is and doing? Now, does she know everything about Jesus? I, I don't know. Does she know what he can do? Does she have faith in him? Obviously, Jesus said that she did. Faith over law. If she is Canaanite and not a part of the people of Israel, she is probably not under the law. And yet she has faith, and this happens. It's kind of a conundrum for me to think about. We open up the New Testament, and other things that God tells us we should do. Yeah, I mean, you open up the New Testament, and there are commands in the New Testament on this is what we should do, right? This is what we should do. This is how we should act. This is how we should respond. These are the things that you should be a part of when you're a part of the body of believers. So there are commands. There is this, uh, almost this New Testament law. And you could, you could, if you wanted to, go through the entire New Testament and come up with a list of things that says this is what God wants from you. And first and foremost is what? Well, it's kind of a giveaway. It's on the back of the board there. First and foremost is what? Faith. A belief in him that is more than just a belief that he exists, but a faith, a trust in him. And if you have that, if you believe in him, if you are faithful and you love God, what will you do? If you love me, you will... You will obey my commands. What does faith propel us to do? To follow what he's instructed. Can we go the other way and say, well, I'm going to bypass faith and believing in God and simply just do what he says? Not because I believe God, but I just think it's a great way to live. Would that be acceptable to God? Well, you're... You're missing something, aren't you? We've just read it again in, in Matthew. That there were these individuals, the Pharisees, who followed stringently the law. And God tells them that they're worshiping in vain because they don't have a heart for him. That they're merely just following what they think are human rules. As opposed to following what God has said. Their faith followed. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't understand and know what God says. Okay, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating a, a bypassing of what God has called us to do. What I'm saying is, is that we do it with a connection to God, with a faith in God, with a heart for God. That our faith should propel us to action, to living for God. Because we see the truth. We see the truth of what Christ has done for us. We see the truth of the love that God has poured out on us 
And Wayne uh, read the passage from 1 John that tells us that his love was lavished upon us. Do you remember as a kid, I don't know if you ever had a grandparent that would spoil you? When we, were, uh, we didn't get to see my, my dad's parents very often, but every once in a while we would make uh, the trek out to see them. And because we didn't get to see them very often, what do you think happened? As grandparents are ought to do, what did they do? They spoiled us. And in fact, when we got there, they had a drawer full of candy, of which we were allowed to partake as much as we wanted, which was unheard of at home. A whole drawer of candy. My kids, um, I don't even know if I should tell this, because anyway, they have a drawer of candy, because they hoard, like Noah hoards Halloween candy. Like he goes out and gets a bag full of Halloween candy and then has it still like next Halloween. Like he hasn't eaten it all yet. Anyway, that's an aside. My grandparents then lavished us with all of these things. We understand that feeling. But from God. That he lavishes us. His, his love is so great and so deep and he pours it upon us. Because he is awesome and amazing and wonderful and holy and good and true. And he loves us so deeply and so profoundly. And we see the truth of that. And when we see the truth of that, when you really see the truth of that, do you not then desire to be pleasing to this God? And I think that's something that people miss is one of the reasons I think why people have a hard time connecting their heart to God is because they don't fully see the love that God is pouring out on them. And yet it's there. That He lavishes that love upon us. And we are called then to love Him and to love the world. And we're called to love why and how. We are to love because He first loved us. We see the truth of God's love and we are forever changed. Scripture tells us we cannot go back. We should not desire to go back to what we once were. But instead to live according to God as slaves now to righteousness. The world offers us a reversal of fortune. That's what they offer. To say you have life, to say you've seen the love of God, to know the love of God, that you have this truth, that you now stand in righteousness before God because of what Jesus has done for you. And the world offers you an opportunity to come back into sin and come back into death. When phrased like that, how appealing is that? Not very. Not very appealing. That's why Satan doesn't phrase it like that, does he? How does he phrase it? We'll go back into his temptation of Adam and Eve, and what did he say? Surely God has not, what? Surely you won't die. That's not, nah, don't worry about it. God didn't mean that. God didn't say that. You can do what you want. We need to be forever changed into what God wants us to be and continue to live in it. I hope today that we remember that we are to live according to the command of God. To the very word of God. We cannot let that be changed before us. It is a trap to think that we can follow 
the traditions of man over the word of God. That we could worship in vain and think that, that our heart is close to God when it is not. We must have a heart that desires to be close to God. That we can live by faith. I want to turn into Romans chapter 3 and just in closing this morning if you'd like to follow along. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Romans 3, verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just. And the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. 